We are going to transition now. We're going to kind of begin to take a look at God's Word. So if you guys have your Bibles, open up to the book of Revelation. Uh, if you're new here, uh, again, my name is Pastor Brian, one of the pastors, and we started a series several months ago going through the book of Revelation. Today we are in chapter 12 and 13. Actually, we moved into this chapter last week, and one of the things I wanted to try to emphasize last week as we were kind of moving into this, I really felt like God wanted to redirect our attention or to actually spend some time to kind of almost move into more of a theme or thematic-based type of a understanding of what's happening in chapter 12 and 13, in particular, talking about the issue of spiritual or demonic type warfare. Um, Realizing that chapter 12 and 13 is is really a very demonically based chapter. Uh, But the major theme of the chapter is to emphasize that Jesus is the dragon slayer. If Satan is the dragon, Jesus is the dragon slayer. Now again, keeping in mind with the reality of the larger theme of the book of Revelation, there's two main lenses that we're wanting to really take a, the look, take a look at the book through. The first main lens, of course, is that the whole book is about Jesus. The whole book. Revelation starts out. It says, this is the unveiling or the revealing of Jesus, the Christ. The book is about Jesus Christ. Interpretations, ideas, theologies, commentaries, Bible studies that emphasize everything but Jesus in the book of Revelation, to be quite frank with you, are not biblically sound. Jesus is the theme of the book. The second lens that we're really constantly trying to remind ourselves to look at the book through is the lens that the book is meant to be a blessing. Uh, John writes that. He says that those who read this book will receive blessing. God wants to bless us through the book. I love the way one of my favorite preachers from the 19th century said it. He says, God wants to, his name is Spurgeon, by the way, Charles Spurgeon, that God brings his blessings through those who read the book, not primarily through those who understand the book. Because he goes on, he's like, look, I don't understand the book. I don't claim to have a comprehensive understanding of the book. There's a lot that I don't understand about the book. But the point I think that Spurgeon was trying to make is that when you keep the main things, the main things in the book, Jesus is central. And one of the main things for the entire book is the same theme that is derived from chapter 12 and 13 is that yes, there is an adversary. Yes, he's beastly. Yes, he's evil. Yes, he's got a long tail. John describes him as as having multiple heads, many crowns and, you know, you know, horns on his head, uh, representing power. He's very, very manifold in his power. Uh, yet at the same time, Jesus is the dragon slayer. That truth not only keeps Jesus central, but that truth also leads us to a great blessing, doesn't it? Especially when you understand the fact that we live in a world that we are, in a sense, kind of in the crossfire between two kingdoms, two uh, powerful worlds, two powerful enemies in a sense. Christ who's all victorious and Satan who is a created being under Christ trying to counteract and destroy uh, Jesus's work. They're not rivals in a sense of equals. Satan is not Jesus's sort of black-hatted equal, right? In the old western movies, good guys wear white hats, bad guys black, right? Uh, In that reality, Satan is not an equal with Jesus, yet he hates Jesus. He hates the work of Jesus. He hates the cross. He hates everything that Jesus loves. 
This is why in Revelation chapter 12, as we looked at this last week, he primarily starts off his attack against this woman. And we looked last week in trying to understand who this woman is. I try to point out that throughout history, church history, 2,000 years of it, by the way, all of which basically, you know, within these contexts of understanding, view the Bible very highly, have great respect and honor for the Word of God. They view who this woman is in several different ways. Some view her as uh, maybe Eve. Some view her as the, uh, the body of Israel. Some view her as um, Mary. Others view this woman in the first few verses of chapter 12 as the church. Um, again, you can... Depending upon how you view the book of Revelation, you're going to come up with a different understanding of that. But the main thing that I want to try to point out, and I said this last week, and I'll keep saying it. If you're the type of person that reads books, or if you, let's put it this way. If you read the book of Revelation the way that you would read a legal document, right? There's some people, if you've never read a legal document, they're kind of hard to understand. It takes a special mind who's trained, who's skilled at trying to understand legalese and reading through different clauses and phrases because if you miss a clause or a phrase, then you get worked in the end. So you need to be able to skillfully, constantly, comprehensively understand this thing. If you read the book of Revelation, the way that you read sort of a, in a comprehensive fa- fashion a legal document, you'll get lost. You need to first approach the book of Revelation from a very large broad perspective, reading it like a narrative, like a comic book in a sense, not taking it like a comic book in nature, but realizing it's full of colors, full of images, caricatures, that's how it's viewed. Lots of, uh, lots of bright events happening, and then you begin to try to hone in on the various themes of the book. One of the themes that comes out of chapter 12 and 13 very clearly is again like what I just said. We have a great adversary, a great foe. He's strong, powerful, mighty, but Jesus is strong, powerful, and mighty. Er, right? He's the dragon slayer. He's the one that has the power and the authority beyond and above the dragon. Okay, does that make sense? And so with that being said, then you can begin to now try to look at and ask, ask those questions. Uh, you know, who is the woman what do the horns represent? What are all these little fine details about? Then you can start looking at that. But don't miss the larger themes in replacement of some of the more finer points and finer details in the text and within the narrative of the book of Revelation. So that being said, I want to basically begin to just hone our minds to understand something. We mentioned this last week. One of the reasons why we're taking a look at this theme of spiritual and demonic warfare is because for one, as you come to chapter 12 and 13, you begin to realize that's what's happening in here. That John gives us this unveiling of this powerful foe, puts a name to him, describes him as Satan, but he also describes him as a dragon, a powerful, mighty dragon that has great power in his tail and he sweeps out of the heavens uh, other demons. He has the ability to bring a lot of great uh, terror and destruction upon the planet. And I think that's John's way of saying we have a very powerful enemy at work in the world in which we live in. Now again, I tried to make the connection last week to say that we oftentimes are unaware of Satan's demonic activities. One of the reasons is because we have been conditioned by Hollywood to view things in sort of a very extravagant type of a fashion where, you know, unless somebody's head is spinning on their shoulders or they're, you know, just 
levitating or something like that or, you know, causing things to fly and around the room and other people are just dying by some sort of telepathy or whatever. I mean, then the reality is we're like, ah, it can't be demonic. But what we're trying to say is that the devil, Satan, has the devices or the means by which to try to trip us up. I want to read you a verse that I read last week that we kept referring to a lot. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11. He says this, So that we would not be outwitted by Satan, we're not ignorant of his designs. And Paul, the apostle, basically is trying to say this, is look, you know, when I'm traveling, when I'm preaching, when I'm going around the world, Paul was an early first century Christian slash preacher slash pastor. And Paul said, when I'm going around the world preaching the gospel, telling people about Christ, I'm always engaging and countering radical types of adversity. And Paul basically tries to put a face to that adversity, and he says the face to that adversity is demonic activity. Paul says we don't want to be ignorant of it, because his knowledge is, is that there is a propensity in each one of our hearts to be ignorant of these things. You see what I'm saying? There is a propensity in our hearts to just simply dismiss it, to discount it, to not be aware of it, and as a result of it, we keep tripping in it. This is one of the reasons why I really feel compelled to just spend time thinking about this. Rather than just keep going through the book of Revelation, I really, really feel compelled that God just wants us to take some weeks to understand this, and really what we're trying to do is to not overemphasize demonic activity, but nor are we trying to be ignorant of it. We're trying to walk in a healthy balance between recognizing that there are two extremes. One is to just omit it altogether, act as if it's not there, which is Paul's way of saying, don't be ignorant. And then the other way is to overemphasize it, where everything is a demon. Everything is about demonic activity, and we overemphasize it. We talk about it too much. Everything seems to be focused upon some sort of a demon. And it oftentimes takes the place of any type of human responsibility. So what we tried to say last week is that, and we're going to continue... Is it really, bottom line is this, I got hours of sermon notes, all right? I can go on for the next three hours and just not shut up, and then we can be here till like three. I'm not going to do that to you guys, because I love you, and I know you get hungry, and you tune out after about 45, 50 minutes, because I'm long-winded. So I'm going to try to be careful about that today. I'm going to try to get as far as I can today. We're going to finish up the rest of it next week, I think, and then we're going to keep going through the book of Revelation. But I really feel compelled that, and you know, to be quite honest with you, there's a lot of times I just feel like God wants us to take a book through the Bible, we go through it, but for some reason, I just really sense that God just says, pause, emphasize, focus, try to bring people to this understanding so that we can be aware of it as a church. I don't know why, to be quite honest with you, I don't know why. Maybe some of you are going through gnarly stuff in your life and you know how to describe it. Uh, maybe some of you are just constantly being tripped up by the demonic devices of the devil, and God wants to help you. I really don't, quite honest, know why. If this is not in response to any type of, you know, you know, things that I'm necessarily sensing in the church, I just, for whatever reason, sense God just says, teach through this, emphasize this, focus on this, pause on it, go through it, and at the end, we'll probably try to do some sort of a question and answer. So, not all that today, but today we're going to take a look at sort of part two of what we started last week. So, with that, that was my very long-winded, right, I'm a long-winded pastor. Uh, introduction, I'm going to pray, and we're going to jump in and keep going through this. I have a lot of content, and I want to get going. Jesus, we just um, commit this morning in your hands, and we just confess, Lord, that a lot of times, a lot of times, far too often than not, we are ignorant of demonic activity. We're not aware of it. 
we try to explain it away as nonsense or just naturalistic. And yet at the same time, God, we, we still find ourselves in a crossfire. We're still getting hit by bullets. We're still being attacked. We're still targeted. Our souls still suffer. We still feel the weight of oppression. Many people who know you, who love you, still feel constant accusation. I don't know why. And so, Father, I, I pray that as we're looking at this stuff over these next few weeks, today, last week, next week, God, that you would use this in the hearts of your people to bring light, to bring transformation, and ultimately to point out to us, to our hearts, as a way of constant and perpetual reminder that even though the dragon's great, that Jesus is the dragon slayer. So, Father, I pray that that Jesus would come to the forefront today, that every other idea, concept, speculation would just take place in the margin. And uh, we commit this time in your hands. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. One of the things that we sort of led off from last week is we talked about how there are three primary means, three primary ways in which the devil, uh, the enemy, attacks. Um, We pointed out that there are three primary ways in which he attacks is the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world is the world system which is around us. It always infects and affects us. And yet we also see that the flesh is something that we carry with us everywhere we go. There are all sorts of means. I could have spent a lot of time on this. I didn't. Um, And maybe some other day I might. But the reality is we have a flesh. We live in a body. We always have these struggles and desires. Uh, Paul sometimes even will use the word appetites, these cravings to do things that are really not necessarily in line or even share the heart of Jesus, our master, our savior, one whom we love. And the final one that we looked at last week was the devil. So the world, the flesh, and the devil are devices, devices by which uh, our enemy, the dragon, oftentimes uses to trip us up, to destroy us, to cause us to fall, to get us to sin. And when we sin, to accuse us. And then when we get accused, we feel like just giving up. And when we feel like giving up, we are totally rendered ineffective as believers for the great uh, purpose of God's kingdom. Good missionaries are not missionaries that are always, always down and out and destroyed and overwhelmed by a feeling of accusation. There needs to be some sense of victory and overcoming and conquering. And the question is, is how does one get there? Those are the real main issues that we're going to be trying to focus on. Is not just trying to look at the devices of the enemy, but trying to understand the remedies. I mentioned last week a book uh, that I referenced that I would highly encourage you guys to take a look at. I think it's Thomas Brooks, uh, Ancient Puritan, and he talks about Satan's devices and uh, precious remedies against Satan's devices and attacks. And the whole idea of the book is to basically go through, find comb through all of these ways in which the devil, the dragon, attacks from the world, the flesh, to the devil, but then he doesn't leave us hanging he actually presents to us the remedy. And I want to make sure that we are constantly aware and reminded of the remedy. That there is demonic attack. There is the dragon constantly at work uh, in very subtle ways oftentimes, as well as very overt ways. And as we're looking now at the third device that the enemy uses, the world, the flesh, now today we're looking at the devil, the way the devil operates is we try to point out last week there are common 
ways in which the demonic realm operates, uh, oftentimes we don't think about these things as being connected to or related to or uh, you know, in sync with a demonic realm, but they are. And I'll point the, some of those verses out in a second. And then the second way is sort of this blatant uh, demonic. And that's, you know, Rosemary's babies. That's heads spinning on their head and on the shoulders and puking up gnarly stuff. And that's, that's the blatant demonic. Things that everybody would just look at and say, duh, that's demonic. Um, but what we're going to be looking at today are some of the common forms of demonic activity that oftentimes just gets omitted. We don't necessarily identify it or think of it as demonic, but it is. So with that being said, last week, the first thing we noticed with regard to the common demonic is pride. Pride really is one of the main uh, ways in which the devil, the dragon, oftentimes tries to trip us up. Very common. It really is at the root of who he is. He's prideful. He's self-serving. He elevates himself over God. We saw that verse in Isaiah. His purposes are not in sync or in line with God. He wants to overcome and thwart the purposes of God. And pridefulness and arrogance really are attributes that are more dragon-like than they are Christ-like. Christ-like who was humble. Jesus came humbly to serve, humbled himself to not wear a crown of gold, but to wear a crown of thorns. Not to tell everybody what to do, but in a lot of ways was told off by everybody. Jesus himself humbled himself That is an attribute. This is why Paul the Apostle and other New Testament writers basically talk about humbling yourself. Because these characteristics of humility reflect the characteristics of God. If you're a son or a daughter of God, then that ought to represent you. If you're arrogant, prideful, uh, and you're always trying to uh, usurp the authority of God and emphasize and push your ways and your thoughts and your opinions and your ideas above and beyond everybody else at the expense of everybody else or at the expense of the community of everybody else, then you share dragon-like characteristics and very good possibility either A, you're not a Christian, or B, if you are a Christian, you got to just repent. you got to turn from that because it's very dragon-like. Okay, so the second thing that we're going to take a look at today, aside from pride, is the next one, which uh, is disobedience to authority. And this does seem to kind of flow a little bit in kind of a pattern. Now, I realize in the culture and the day and age in which we live, this is a very big deal, all right? Um, A lot of sociologists realize or believe that the day and age in which we live in is sort of what's called a postmodern mentality. It's in other words, you know, the age in which we lived in the past was modernism, in which really emphasized a lot of uh, structure and tendency towards hierarchy and authority. And yet, I think in a lot of ways, what's happened is a lot of leaders have uh, led people astray, have done things that were very self-serving. And as a result of that, uh, I think kind of this mentality of post-modernity or this, you know, a lot of sociologists even say we're kind of in a post-modern type of a culture where really the main idea is conveyed that we have this sort of working struggle inside that says, you know what, I can't trust anybody else except the dude I look at in the mirror or the girl I look at in the mirror. That's the only one I'll trust. So what has kind of led to the culture in which we live in today is that for the most part, everybody just trusts themselves and despises every other form of leadership. And the reality is this is that there are times and occasions in which leadership must be challenged and rebuked. 
especially in cases where, say, a leader abuses authority, takes advantage of the weak, uh, you know, replaces his own agenda and serves the rich and those who help serve him over those that are marginalized or hurting or oppressed. And those are forms in which, obviously, there are abuses, and those abuses need to be regulated and dealt with and uh, confronted. Yet, at the same time, I want to start from the prime example of authority, which is God himself. God is the prime example of authority. God himself, in Trinitarian form, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, this is why the doctrine of the Trinity is so essential, is that it, it, it displays for us this concept of authority. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, there's one God. One God, yet there is deference. Let me explain what I mean. Jesus, while he was on the earth, says, I do everything, always that which pleases the Father. And outside of the Father, I don't do anything. I only do what the Father tells me to do. Say, so what is that? It's authority. Jesus is in submission to the authority of his Father. There's unity there, yet at the same time, there's a deference. There's an orderliness. The Holy Spirit, Jesus says, is sent out from me. He does everything to bring glory to me, and everything I do brings glory to the Father. Do you understand? So when Paul writes about authority in the New Testament, Paul is writing with the concept of the Trinity in his mind. So when Paul might give an, ex- an example talking about, for example, the, uh, uh, a marriage. And I know this is, ho- this is horribly uh, frustrating to a lot of people today, and I realize that this is highly debated within our culture today. Nobody likes to hear this, but to be quite frank with you, I just got to say it because it's in the Bible. And the reality is that, that God has an order within the family. That the male, the man, is to be the head of the household. And the woman is to work in submission. Now that's very troubling to some, but I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why. Because to be quite frank with you, male headship has been abused. It's been abused. Men have been jerks. Men have acted more dragon-like than Christ-like. They're authoritarian. They rule their house like a dictatorship, and they're just jerks. They tell their woman what to do. They're forceful with her. They're not kind. They don't treat the kids with respect and honor. And they're just basically jerks. And as a result of that, that has given rise to feminism. And to be quite honest with you, I don't blame them. I don't blame them. And what the answer is, is not to break apart authority, it's to restore authority. Does this make sense? It's to restore authority. Nobody's saying amen right now because everybody's like, do we need to talk about this? Yes, we do. Because it's, um, let me read the verse here, we'll go on. Jesus basically is in this interaction with Peter. And he asks the disciples, who do men say that I am? Peter says, I think you're the Christ. Jesus says, great, now that I'm in the Christ, I want to tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to go die. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. You're all going to follow me. I'm going to die. And Peter's like, hmm, that doesn't sink well with my theology of the Christ. See, Peter, interestingly enough and ironically enough, had his own particular theology about what Jesus, the Christ, or the Messiah would do. Peter's theology was that Messiah would reign. Messiah would overthrow Caesar, or at least overthrow the yoke of Caesar within the homeland of Judea. That Jesus or Messiah would set up great power and authority, and we would rule and reign with him, is the way Peter's thought. And yet Peter, again, was theologically off-center. Okay, you got to understand this. Peter was theologically off-center. And so he pulls Jesus aside, I think it was well-intentioned, and he basically rebukes Jesus. He says, you're not going to die. You will not die. Because dead messiahs aren't good messiahs. 
we need Messiah to be alive. And if you're not alive, we can't, you know, overcome. We can't be uh, powerful. We can't have authority. You know, I can't rule in your right hand. My brother rule on your left hand. Everything in our theology is going to crumble. And Jesus is like, Peter, you don't get it. You're rebuking me. All right? I mean, there is, there is by the way, inconsistency with no Lord. All right? Did you get that? Like, we, the, the whole idea of, like, no Lord Jesus just doesn't sink. I mean, if Jesus is Lord, you don't go, like, rebuking him and saying, no, it doesn't work with me, right? The idea of Lord in and of itself implies submission. We submit to Jesus. We submit to his authority, not because Jesus is an authoritarian, uh, you know, tyrant, but Jesus is a good, loving, caring, merciful, kind, self-sacrificing God, you got to catch this. If you don't have the concept of the gospel uh, superimposed over authority, what you end up with is a 50s picture of marriage where the husband tells the wife to shut up, do what I tell you to do, make me babies and my waffles and everything will be fine. And a woman kicks back against that, giving way into the 60s and the 70s mentality of feminism and everything falls apart. The gospel concept of authority is God's a good God who loves those who submit to him and has always their best interest in mind for his glory and for their joy. And at the heart of saying, no, Lord, or at the heart of challenging authority, Jesus says, get thee behind me, Satan. There is something very demonic about challenging authority in a perpetual way that is just not correct, all right? Again, good opportunities, there are good times by which to address and challenge authority, especially when it's out of control. Women, some of you women, some of you women think you're doing your husband's a favor by not saying anything, and he's perpetually rude to you. He claims to be a Christian, claims to love Jesus. He rebukes you publicly. He's just not nice to you. He's not nice to you in front of the kids. What you need to do in a very humble, loving fashion is pull him aside and rebuke him. You're like, can I do that? Yeah. Why? Because you love him. You don't want him to sin. You understand? That's sin. He is sinning against you. You should not let him get away with sin. Sin needs to be challenged and confronted. Not submitted to, but in a humble way so that you don't become prideful and arrogant in the way Proverbs talks about a woman like a dripping faucet who's constantly, perpetually fighting and rejecting the authority and the headship of her husband. Don't let your husbands get away with sin. Hold them to it in a very loving, respectful type of a fashion. Does that make sense? The point that I want to make is this, is that authority is a God-given, established institution starting at the top, working its way down. But it's got to look like the Trinity. So if the husband, the man, is not loving the wife, like Paul says, Christ loved the church, then it's got to be challenged. It needs to be dealt with and worked through so that there's a proper balance brought back into that authority structure. Does that make sense? No amens, no hallelujah, 
We'll just keep going. All right, take a look at the last one. James 4, 7 says this. He says, submit yourselves to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. The point that I think Paul, or or that's basically being conveyed here through James, is that to submit to God also implies we're resisting or rejecting the devil. Again, the issue is that there's a submission to God. God is the authority. I love God. I serve God. I submit to God. And as a result of that, I am not submitting to the wills and passion and purposes of the devil. There is a submission that is godly to buck that system, to fight that system, just because it may be in vogue within uh, current conditions of the culture or because you just have a personality that likes to fight the system no matter what, without any really good cause or purpose, really is a lot more dragon-like than it is Christ-like. That's all I'm trying to say. Good reasons to uh, break against uh, systems, but more or less, more often than not, not a lot of good reasons. There's a lot of times people fight the system, and they're just not really good reasons. All right, next slide I want to take a look at is, uh, some of you are like, whew, we're done with that one. Okay, uh, divisiveness and divisions. You're like, oh, out of the frying pan in the fire. Yes, okay, uh, Ro- Romans chapter 16, verse 7, um, Paul says this, I appeal to you, brothers, and watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve the Lord Jesus, but their own appetites. Uh, Smooth talk, flattery, and they deceive their own hearts of the naive. So he's talking about they're deceived, and they deceive. And they're actually not serving God, but they're serving their appetites. Again, and if the flesh, the world, are also devices of the devil, these are in league with a demonic realm or demonic activity that's at work in this world trying to count, bring about a kind of a counterproductive work of what God's trying to establish in his church and within the world, all right? So he's saying there are those that are divisive. And he says, you've got to mark those guys. Be careful for them. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent to what is evil. Uh, the God of peace will soon crush Satan. I love this verse. Under your feet. This is amazing to me. He's like, the God of peace will crush the head of the serpent under your feet. This is amazing to me that God in his mercy even allows his little children that are kind of oftentimes troublemakers to be the ones by which we put our tread in his head. All right? That's the idea. So the point that I want to make is this, is that there are those that bring about kind of a divisive spirit or divisiveness or division within the church or within a Bible study or within a little group, and they can wreak havoc. I oftentimes like to point out that in certain circumstances, there are people, I kind of call them uh, single-issue crusaders. What I mean by this is these are people that have one particular item, uh, one string in their guitar, and they're always playing that, just that one string. Like, how's your life? Like, mm, one string. One note, that's it. It's all I ever talk about. It's the one thing I'm passionate about. Everything else is not even in my purview. It's not even on my radar screen because I, I'm, I'm a one, you know, one concept, one idea, one purpose type guy. That's it. And anything that's not even on that radar screen oftentimes gets resisted and fought against. And the interesting thing about this is I think that's what Paul's trying to say is that there are people that are single issue uh, crusaders that are always out looking for that one thing to bring divide, division over and fight over. Um, these are people that maybe come into a little Bible study or into a church, and they're like, hmm, how's the music? It's like, you know, music's not good or doesn't meet their particular quality or whatever, and they're like, this church stinks. Or people aren't, you know, doing whatever, and they have these certain criteria in their mind that they're looking for. Single-issue crusaders. You, you want to know the word that Paul uses for it in uh, 1 Corinthians? 
He says, they're immature. Let's just point this. It's just, they're immature. They're young in their faith. They don't understand the, the beauty and the diversity of the body of Christ. There are things that they're just focusing on, looking for, and everything else is sort of outside of the perspective. And that's what Paul is basically saying in the Corinthian letter. There were these people in Corinth that were like, you know, I'm from Paul. You know, I, I follow Paul's ministry. There are others that are like, I follow Peter. There are others that are like, you know, I follow uh, you know, Cephas, and there's others that are like, you know, I follow John Calvin, and there are others that are like, I follow Chuck Smith, and there are others that, you know, I, you get the picture? You get the idea? Paul's like, it's just carnal. It's just not the way to live. It's not the way that we ought to be acting. Paul even goes on, he's like, look, I'm a servant. I love Jesus. You guys are trying to elevate me and trying to like build and rally like a, you know, a, a, a university around me, a church around me. Paul's like, I'm just a dude. I love Jesus. I just happen to have been given the privilege of opening the Bible and speaking. I can talk a lot. I'm long-winded. It's like what Paul's gift is. It's like, that's great, but don't, don't, don't take your eyes off Jesus. Don't be divisive over stuff that is not essential to the elementary basis of the gospel itself. Because that divisiveness is more dragon-like than it is Christ-like. You get, get the idea? Let me give you another example. Um, I, I think it boils down to this. A lot of times what you can oftentimes happen or have seen within certain groups, there are people that have certain passions or certain desires or even certain giftings, I would say. Certain giftings that are good. In the Corinthian letter, 1 Corinthians, uh, there was a group of people in the church that were like, you know, we're all about the gift of tongues. Everybody's, you know, every time they gather, they're all speaking in tongues. And everything's about the gifts, the, the, the spiritual gift of tongues. And there were others perhaps that weren't having the gift of tongues in their church settings or in their gatherings and other people from this group that were like all into tongues were coming to the church service that didn't have tongues and they're like, you guys are all like unspiritual, right? Nobody speaks in tongues here. What's your problem? And Paul hears about this and he's right and he's like, look, you guys, you're looking for things to identify as spiritual maturity and your criteria is all messed up. You're single issue crusaders looking for this one thing and you're willing to divide the church over that? Paul's like, grow up guys. It's not the way to live. The reality is this. We have a church and we want to try to make a distinction very clearly between essential doctrinal issues that we will not divide over. Because here's the irony. There are times when Paul will say, look, if anybody preaches any other doctrine than the doctrine that I gave to you that was from Jesus, then have nothing to do with them. Kick them out of your service. Don't hang out with them. Don't spend time with them. Don't even have dinner with them because they're going to bring about false teaching. So Paul's not saying, look, don't divide over all costs. But he is saying, make sure that you don't divide over non-essential, trivial issues. And the point that I would make is this, is that most of the times there are divisions in the church. They're not over essential issues. They're over non-essential things. They're over the way the music is sounding. Or they're over the way, you know, how long the pastor yells at you for. They're over, you know, the type of clothes the pastor wears. Or the type of children's ministry there is. Or, you know, the point that I'm making is this. We just got to be careful. There are essential issues that we should fight for. And then there are non-essential issues that we should not divide over. But actually, quite to the contrary, bring open arms and say, let's unite as a body. This doesn't mean that we're all uniform. This doesn't mean we all wear matching sweatshirts and hang out and talk the same lingo, drive the same cars. You know, this means basically 
We're not uniform, but we're united. There's a big distinction between living in uniformity and living united, the way Jesus prayed for us to be united. Is this making sense to you guys? Okay, thanks for both of you. Um, we, we should be united on this point, that we agree that there are essential elements that as a church we won't divide over. We'll lovingly discuss, we'll talk about, we'll deal with, we'll, you know, things like you know, end times, how the end times unfolds, or whether or not gifts of the Spirit are for today, or what gifts of the Spirit are for today, or the way that we celebrate or worship, or church government, how a church is governed, and things of this nature and matter. Those are non-essential issues. We should not be fighting and dividing over. Essential issues, we should be celebrating, worshiping, praying, loving Jesus, singing, and then taking these things out to the rest of the world. Okay. All right. I'm done ranting on that one. Next one. Uh, Sexual sin. This is where it gets interesting. Um, What I want to talk about with regard to this, I'm just going to read it and I'll talk about it. Um, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 7, 5. He says, don't deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come back together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So here's what Paul, I think, is saying. He's basically been talking about how in Corinth, they were a very sexually uh, addicted culture. Sex was everywhere. It was rampant. It was a city very similar to uh, like San Francisco. It was a port city. A lot of activity, a lot of uh, people, uh, diversity from cultures all around the world. Sailors were coming in, and when sailors were kind of at bay, they were looking for prostitutes. A lot of prostitution going on. A lot of sexual activity was happening within that church. So Paul was basically trying to help them understand, look, some of you, you should just get married. Get married so that you don't struggle sexually, so that you can have sex with your wife. And that, that institution can be protected by you guys having sex with each other. But he basically goes on to say, in this particular text right here, some of you are like, I'm not married, this is apply to me. The next one will, so you can just listen right now, because I guarantee you at some point this will apply to you. So just listen up. The reality is this, is Paul says, there are some of you that, uh, you know, maybe first season, um, aren't sexually active in your marriage. And he's like, that's great, as long as it's by consent. Maybe you're a sailor, you're going to be gone for a couple months, and you stay sexually inactive because, obviously, distance. You guys are gone from each other. Some of you, for whatever reason, maybe by fasting, praying, for whatever reason, you're not going to be sexually active. But Paul says, you should actually be regularly sexually active as a married couple in that type of living, dwelling type of a relationship. And the reason why, he says, he says, so that Satan will not come in so that the dragon will not tempt. Let me give you an example. I'll just kind of, you know, pull back the curtains a little bit, talk some of the counseling sessions I've had over the years. Many, many counseling sessions I've had with married couples. One of the things that I've seen often is that sometimes in marriage relationships, especially where sex is an issue, maybe the husband's into porn, maybe there's some sort of activity going on that's outside of the marriage, sometimes, not always, sometimes in that setting, I've watched, as let's say for example, maybe a woman out of frustration with her husband, maybe out of past hurt that's never been thoroughly dealt with from another relationship, whatever the case is, sometimes may actually use her body as a means of getting back at her husband. In other words, she says, rather than me giving my body sexually to my husband, I won't have sex with him at all. I'm angry with him. He treats me poorly. He you know, yells at me in front of the kids. He disrespects me, and I will not have sex with him. So every time they want to be intimate, she pulls away. She backs off. She says she has a headache, whatever the case is, and the husband gets frustrated. And 
the husband is fully responsible for what he does with that. But what I want you to see is that when sex is withheld in that institution of marriage, for whatever reason other than what Paul says, by consent, I want you to get this picture in your mind. Paul is saying it's almost like, it's almost like between you and your wife, in that bed, in between, is a demon. If you can picture that, if you can understand that between you and your spouse is demonic activity, keeping you at distance from each other. It brings a whole new perspective of, uh, I just, we just, I, I hate sex. I don't want to have sex. I'll use my body as a means to get back at my husband because of the way he treats me. Demonic activity is at work. I've watched it time and time again, and I hate it. I hate watching it destroy people's marriages, destroy people's lives. Some, by God's good grace, have been healed and have restored and have moved on. Some have ended up in divorce, bloody, horrible, destructive divorces. And a lot of times, it boils down to demonic activity at work in this particular setting. Next one, look at this. Marriage between believers and non-believers. Um, Paul writes this little passage, I'll read it, 2 Corinthians 6, 14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, or light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them, and I will walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from them, from their midst, and separate from them, Separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing, and I will welcome you, and I will be your father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters to me, says the Lord God Almighty. Paul, as he's writing this, he's basically writing to this group of people again in Corinth, the city I talked about, and he's basically saying, look, the reality is, guys, is you belong to God. There is a relationship that's changed. You used to belong to this world. Paul says it was like darkness. You walked in darkness. You bumped into things in the dark, but now God's brought you into a new kingdom, into new light. There's new ways to view things, new ways to understand your family, new ways to look at relationships and partnerships and things of that nature. And he's saying, what you need to understand is that there are basically two radical worldviews that are working. One, Paul depicts as light. One is darkness. And he says, now that you're in this relationship with Christ where God is your father, what relationship, he's asking, hypothetically, does unrighteousness have with righteousness or Christ with demons or uh, non-believers with unbelievers. Uh, I think this goes all the way to partnerships, business partnerships even. I mean, I talk to guys sometimes, they're like, look, I'm a Christian, I want to start a new business, and I want to partner with a guy that's not a Christian. I'm like, look, I mean, you know, what, what should I do? I'm like, ah, you know, you, you, for one, I think you need to take into consideration this verse. I think you need to think about this because quite frankly, you guys are going to have conflicts. You're going to butt heads as to how to spend the money you're going to have difference of opinions as to how, how you view. You're going to have different value systems placed on things. You guys are going to be syncing up the different way. And you might not even be syncing up at all. It might be conflicting with each other. But it also boils down to, I think, the way marriages are, are viewed. I want to just simply say this. A lot of you guys are single. And I see this, and I've got 16 years of experience with this living here in slow. 
dealing with this on a regular basis. I can't tell you how many times my wife and I, Sherry, have had regular conversations with people that have kind of been in this place of like, you know, look, I'm like 24, 25, maybe 28, 30, 31, 32. And I'm like, I don't have a husband yet. I haven't found him in this church. I don't know if they exist, but I have this boyfriend, this guy that's constantly coming on to me at work. He's not a Christian. What should I do? You got you to gotta look at his verse. And you got to keep holding on to the fact that God's your dad. He loves you. He's not going to leave you out to dry. He's not forgotten you. And, and the reality is I've seen, I've seen both sides of this literally come to full circle. I've seen people that are like, you know what? I don't know if this verse applies to me. I think I'm the one exception to it. And the funny thing is, ironically, everybody thinks they're the one exception. It's just, they, they can do it. It's not going to affect them. You know, maybe they're going to pray hard and that person's going to come to know Christ. They're going to be saved and everything's going to be great. But to be quite frank with you, I, I, I don't think I've seen that happen yet. I, I really don't think I've seen that happen yet. What I have seen, full circle, all right, going on 40, going on 40. Yeah, I know I'm an old guy, but I'm going on 40. I've seen this full circle of people's lives go through series of, you know what, I think I'm the one exception. I'll get married. I'll make it happen. And all I see, oftentimes, most often, is radical heartbreak. Especially when they start having kids. Because in their mind, they're like, you know what, I just want so bad for my kids to love Jesus. I want my husband to lead me. I want my husband to go to church with me. I want my husband to tuck my kids in at night and pray over them. Lay hands on them and pray for them when they're sick and hurting. Or when difficult things are happening in the, in the marriage. I want them to just sit down with me and hold my hand and pray with me. And they don't. The reason is... Two radically different value systems. Paul chalks up. He says, one's light, one's darkness. One's more like Christ. One's more like the father of this world, the devil. You guys, I know this is tough, man. Some of you, some of you struggle with this. Some of you might even be in relationships. I had someone come up to me in the middle of the service earlier. He's like, look, this is, this is why I'm here today. It's why I'm here today. It's my first time at church. It's why I'm here. Uh, I was brought up Christian. Started going out with this girl who is a Christian. She broke up with me and said, you're not a Christian. And he's like, I'm, I'm a broken man. And he's like, I'm here because I feel like God's doing exactly what you just said right there. You guys, this is so serious. Let me just tell you something. For me, as a dad, I love my kids. The greatest, most important thing, most dri- driving passion I have in my life is I want to see my kids know Jesus. Every night I pray for my kids and I lay my hands on them, and I usually pray out loud over them, Jesus, help my kids to see you as the greatest treasure that outshines, outlasts, and more valuable than any other treasure on this planet. That they would see you as a treasure. They would love you. Every night I pray that over my kids. That's my greatest desire. And if that's somewhere in your heart, somewhere in the five-year plan, 10-year plan of your life, you want that to happen, You have to consider this verse. That's why Paul says, marrying an unbeliever, knowing that they have nothing in common with Christ, is like partnering with the dragon in some way. I'm going to be careful about that because I always want to leave room for possibilities of God to do grace and change people's lives. That can't happen. But by and large, I've just watched it too many times where it doesn't. Last one is this. Uh, false religion, false teaching, false Jesus. I want to finish on this. 
there's something very demonic about false teachings, false Jesuses, false religions. I know that is radically not PC. I know. Neither was Jesus. But my point is that Paul is trying to make some assumptions and make statements about this. And here's what he says in 1 Timothy 4.1. The Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. There are teachings that are not congruent, not consistent with the revelation of Christ. Paul says these are like teachings that come directly from the mouth of the dragon himself. He later goes on, he says, 1 Corinthians 10, 14, my beloved brethren, flee idolatry. Uh, what, pra- what pagan sacrifice do they offer to demons and not to God? And he says, "Why? Do you- I don't want you to be participants of sacrifices to demons. Let me try to describe it to you like this. The next slide, I want to show you this. I want to basically wrap it up with this. Um, next slide. Um, basically, here's what I have written down. I'm elevating non-essential truth to a level of essential equals divisiveness. We already looked at this. When you take things that are non-essential to salvation, to faith in Christ, and to everlasting joy with Christ in eternity. When you take those teachings and you elevate them and say, this is more important than anything else, and I'm going to be a champion for this particular one-stringed instrument, cause, that's all I'm always going to sing about. You'll be divisive. All right? Um, If you are a person that replaces corrupted truth with essential truth, that's false doctrine. All right? In other words, for example, in John's day, in Jesus' day after Jesus died, resurrected, and ascended into heaven, John the Apostle says, look, some of you describe that Jesus came, but he says, rather than describing that Jesus came in the flesh, some of you describe that Jesus came like a phantom. And John says, in 1 John, he says, if anybody comes to you and does not confess that Jesus came in the flesh, is of Antichrist. It's teaching a doctrine of a demon. So what you're seeing here is that by taking a central doctrinal truth and you tweak it a little bit, you change it, you modify it, you corrupt it a little bit, and then you use that to be replaced, you know, it's like a virus in your computer. You take good code and you just tweak it a little bit and everything's all messed up. That's what false doctrine does. Or you don't reveal all truth on an essential doctrine. That equals false doctrine, really by way of reductionism, meaning you reduce things, you're prone to just sort of put everything into a thumbnail picture or sketch and you reduce it and you omit a lot of important essential doctrinal truths and you create something new that's really not in line or in sync with the gospel or the doctrinal truth. Let me give you an example of that. Uh, There are those, and I think those within the prosperity movement are guilty of this. There are verses, they're half right, there are verses that talk about God prospering those who love him. There's no question about that. So sometimes they'll emphasize verses like that. But the reality is, as true as that is, it's not all of the truth on the given subject. Does that make sense? So when all you emphasize is one particular aspect of it and don't emphasize all of the particulars, all of the essential teaching on that particular subject, you have false doctrine, false gospels, false messages going out. Because the reality is, is even though the Bible does talk about prospering in Christ, there is also the reality that some will suffer in Christ. Some will have hardships in Christ. Some of you might have your goods stolen, or you might experience different types of sicknesses as a Christian who loves Jesus, who's going to be saved, who knows that you're going to go to heaven. You might suffer. So what we want to make certain is that 
in any way of reducing, any way of modifying, any way of elevating non-essentials, you end up having sort of these doctrines that are really, by and large, demonic and divisive. The reality is, is that any time you take Jesus from the Bible and you uh, move him out of the context of the Bible, and you begin to sort of fabricate and make your own teaching of Jesus, what you have is a false Jesus. I just watched the movie with my kids the other night, and this is exactly what happened. It was about this kid who's going around trying to save his Jewish friend. And he's just like, look, if you just take the Eucharist, the host, you'll be saved. You know, if you just, you know, ba- praise, pray, and you baptize yourself. So the little kid takes his little Jewish friend out to the beach and baptizes him, and says, as long as you take the first communion, you'll be saved. So afterwards, the movie was off. I just sat down with my kids. I'm like, eh, I hate to tell you this, but the whole movie was just jacked up. It was just totally false doctrine. Starting from, you know, the first thing that the kids said. I always do that. Dads, don't just try to hide stuff from your kids. Sit there and watch it with them. And then go through it with them afterwards. Give them the right doctrine. Teach them it. Because the reality is, they're going to watch it at their friend's house. They're going to get old enough. They're going to watch it. They need to have a mind that's trained by daddy to understand the true Jesus. Okay, the point that I want to make is this, is that there are false Jesuses, false doctrines, false teachings that will come, and Paul makes the point, it's demonic. There is a demonic source there. I want to finish by this. I want for us to listen to what the text says. I'm going to have the worship team come on up. We're going to wrap it up. Is I want you to listen to this particular verse in Roman, uh, Revelation chapter 12. It begins at about verse 10. I want, to hear, want you to hear what it says. It says, and I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation... Now salvation and the power of the kingdom of our God and the authority of Christ have come to the accuser of our brothers. So he's basically acknowledging the fact that Satan is an accuser. Satan is an adversary. Satan is a being that's regularly at work, tripping up, destroying, setting up traps so that we can fall in those traps. And when we fall in those traps, then he kicks us while we're down, condemns us while we're in that trap. We feel really bad about ourselves. We don't want to go to church. We don't want to hang out in community. We don't want to be in community groups anymore. We just want to run because we feel horrible. That's equivalent to what's going on here in Revelation. What you need to note is that in heaven, in heaven, every single saint Every single saint from the very beginning of time that has been washed by Christ, that is in relationship with Christ, has also suffered and has been molested. If I can use that word, graphic word, to describe what the enemy has done to us. But here's what it says in terms of the end of the story. He says, For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God, and that they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb, and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and tell you who dwell on them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. What I want you to be aware of, if you're not aware of it already, you are in a crossfire between the devil, who is constantly at work trying to destroy you, trying to set up traps for the world, the flesh, and the devil, And if you're in Christ, my encouragement is keep fighting. Don't give up. Don't be ignorant of the devices of the devil. But please be aware of the remedy. Jesus is the dragon slayer. And that's exactly why out of heaven these voices rise and it says rejoice with loud singing. Because Jesus is the dragon slayer. Some of you know what it feels like to be molested and destroyed and ruined by the attacks of the dragon. 
What I want you to see more than anything today is that Jesus is greater. We're going to sing. We're going to worship. We're going to give our tithes and our offerings. If you're one of our guests, please don't feel any obligation to give. This is for those who call us a church, who love Jesus, who love what God's doing here. I want to give joyfully and generously. It's because God's joyful and generous. We want to be like God in our giving. We're going to sing. Some of us, hopefully, will confess sin. Confess sin. Confess the fact that maybe you've been deceived. Maybe you've been divisive. Maybe you've been partnering with darkness. It's an opportunity for you to just confess your sin to Christ. Run to Jesus. Dragon Slayer, run to him. Love him, serve him. We'll sing to him. We're going to pray. We'll give. We'll sing. We'll respond by partaking communion. We'll worship. Some of us will respond by confessing our sin, being made new in our relationship with God. Jesus, thank you for this time. We sing to you. We worship you. We give you our praise and our adoration. Because you're a great God. You're the dragon slayer, Jesus. We thank you that you've conquered defeated not only our greatest enemy, death, but his counterpart, the dragon.